So this is some pretty serious philosophy today, so I guess we better pray hard. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a really beautiful late summer evening. Thank you for the glories of your creation. Um, help us uh, to understand, though, that we live in a fallen world, and we have to deal with that while we wait expectantly for your coming kingdom. So um, open our minds and help us to make use of of what we can learn. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I wanted to give a... Uh, uh, make a note about the title, Prometheus Unbound, that um, Truman used for the title of this chapter is a title of an epic poem. Well, it was a drama in an epic poem formed by uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Um, uh, my understanding was called a closet drama because it was just meant to be read and not performed. But it it is ostensibly, well, it is kind of based on the Greek poet, I mean, the Greek playwright Aeschylus's version of Prometheus. Um, and it's ostensibly about Prometheus... Uh, does everybody know the myth of Prometheus? So he, he ticked the gods off, particularly Zeus, and he was punished for eternity by having an eagle eat his liver out every day. Uh, so, so this is about the, Percy, uh, Shelley's version is about Prometheus actually finally being freed because the guy, gods rise up and overthrow Zeus. I mean, I'm not going to say I've read the whole thing, read excerpts and, and read... Um, commentary on it. But I do know this, that it's really, it's what's called misotheism. Misotheism is a fancy word for hatred of God. Shelley was a well-known atheist, but, but not of the live and let live, and you know, I don't really care there's, you know, whether you believe in God or not variety. No, he was actually pretty much consumed by hatred with God in this play. So he disguises uh, the rebellious human that he is as Prometheus and Zeus is actually the Judeo-Christian God in disguise. And I wanted to mention this because uh, Truman doesn't trace it and you can only trace so many ideas at once. And I think uh, Truman was wise to do exactly what he did. We might come back to this idea though about misotheism because one can actually trace this idea not necessarily starting with the uh, Romantics, but if we start there with Shelley, not all the uh, Romanticists. Um, some of them were Christians of a short sort. Many of them were deists, but some of them were uh, atheists like Shelley. Um, Marx was also an atheist, and one could argue a misotheist. Uh, hatred of God is there, certainly hatred of religion, and certainly Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche despised Christianity. He didn't just disbelieve it. He despised it. He thought it was a problem for all the troubles in the world. Um, Freud, who we'll discuss uh, next week, I'm not so sure about. And Wilhelm Reich, I'm not so sure about either. But one can trace this idea of not just simply not acknowledging God's existence and thereby being foolish, but actually exhibiting hatred towards God. Um, it's an interesting concept. But anyway, the title of this chapter comes from, again, Shelley's... None of this is in there. I just thought of that. 
while I was doing this from Shelley's poem of the same name, drama in poetic form. So this is the major premise. This is what I think uh, Truman is trying to get across in this chapter. Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche moved Western culture towards expressive individualism through their ideas that there is no moral structure to human nature. There might be some sort of biological structure, but there's, there's no moral implications for anything humans do. And moral codes are inherently oppressive. Uh, well, we'll talk about the differences they have in those, but both of them would agree on the, well... They were only they overlapped, but they weren't really contemporaneous in their work. Uh, they had different ideas concerning those broad ideas, but their philosophies agree on that. So Marx, a uh, well-known German philosopher and economic theorist, he was an atheist and materialist. Um, his uh, parents were nominally Lutheran who had converted from Judaism as more of a cultural thing than really any kind of belief. Um, he was an atheist and a materialist, matter is all that existed, who denied any transcendent reality or sacred foundation for any moral order. So we believe uh, that morality is based on God. I believe it's an expression of God's character. He believed no such thing. It was simply a tool for the oppressed to oppressed, of the oppressors to oppress the oppressed. He asserted that economic relations alone determine how we think of reality and how mystery history unfolds. Uh, it's going to be interesting that he 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 reduces everything to economic relations, while Freud will reduce everything to sex. I mean, literally, that as far as. Freud is concerned, the whole purpose of human life is simply sex. For Marx, uh, it's economic relations. We are uh, humans above all else, our makers and fabricators. We make things, we produce things. This gives us a sense of fulfillment and enjoyment. So he believed, Marx was an atheist. He borrowed his ideas about atheism from a philosopher by the name of, a contemporary German philosopher by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach. Uh, Marx believed in Feuerbach's uh, psychological projection explanation for religion. That, that's not what Feuerbach called it. That's what analysts call it. Belief in God and this idea is merely the projection of human values, hopes, and longings onto an imagined supreme being. So it's a great father in the sky kind of thing. Um, religion serves as opium to assuage the alienation and the unhappiness of the oppressed proletariat. Proletariat is the working class. Religious morality is an expression of the economic... I'm reading the next slide. Too late. Okay. <laughs> Religious morality is an expression of the economic concerns of the dominant class, the bourgeoisie, and thus a tool for oppression. Religion must therefore be eradicated for true freedom and happiness in society. At its root, Marxism believes that religion is a bad thing and it needs to be eliminated. That's why if it's a Marxist society, it is perforce an atheist society. 
Uh, you can't have one without the other. There was an attempt, it kind of faded, fortunately, uh, in the late 60s and 70s to sort of wed Marxism and Christianity and so-called liberation theology. Uh, it was a forced marriage, it didn't work. Um, neither Christians nor Marxists eventually had much use for it. Um, social justice still abounds though amongst uh, many what are called progressive Christians, I guess. But the idea of revolutionary liberation as an aspect of Christ's redemptive ministry is no longer popular. It was at a time. Um, so Marx would say in his idea of uh, economics being the be-all and end-all of all human relationship, he said, in the Communist Manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Uh, I won't go into detail, but um, he borrowed from Hegel's view of history. For Hegel, I'm actually even being more simplistic and not quite accurate than Truman was, but for Hegel, history is sort of the process of God becoming aware of himself through human beings. So history changes, consciousness changes through history, and it advances in stages called the dialectic. And this is usually by ideas, so Hegel's view. So you've got this one idea called a thesis, thesis. you have another idea called an antithesis. Uh, they meet, clash, they meld, and then there's a higher synthesis. And in this way, we become aware of ourselves, uh, we become deeper in consciousness, and we eventually advance towards a somewhat pantheistic view of, of godhood. Uh, Marx had uh, no use for Hegel's spirituality, so he said, no, that's not it at all. Uh, yes, there's a dialectic, there's a thesis, there's an antithesis, but you're really talking about different classes. You originally, not originally, but at one point, you had masters and slaves, and then they clashed, I mean literally sometimes, but the ideas clashed too. Um, and you ended up with uh, sort of the, the feudal system, which was not quite the same as, you know, serfs had, you know, some property, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't te technically slaves. And then that moved up towards and eventuated, eventually you have capitalism and workers, and you have the bourgeoisie class and you have, a, they're clashing now. And eventually this will uh, move through history. Uh, Marx believed in uh, that history had a inbuilt teleology. History just did that. God didn't move it. This is just what history did is moving inevitably through the system towards the worker's paradise. But first it has to go through revolutionary processes um, with a lot of bloodshed along the way but eventually we'll all be happy in the communist paradise. Um, there are some people who still believe that. Uh, apparently, um, the death of Marxism has been greatly exaggerated, or was greatly exaggerated back in the 90s. If you have any questions or comments, again, feel free to pause. So his reduction 
of all human social relationships to economic relations means, as Truman says, all human social relations must therefore be political. The pre-political is no more. So if you wonder why everything is now political, science is political, um, sports is political, education is political, Bowling leagues are probably going to be political. I know the the Boy Scouts are political. The Girl Scouts are political. Um, this is, again, I'm not saying that everybody who has done this, the politicization of these things, is a Marxist, but it indicates the influence by what has come to be called cultural Marxism. Because there was a change from the idea that the oppressor class was the bourgeoisie to the oppressed uh, for the proletariat to the oppressor classes, well, white males. And now it's, you know, lesbian, gay, people of color, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the clash now, supposedly, in the Marxian move in history. Um, it's called cultural Marxism. Um, which gets really complicated. How did it get from what Marx said to what it is now? But we'll skip that for now. What Truman is interested in and how this influenced the culture we have right now with respect to the sexual revolution. And of course now sex has become political. That will be the next, I think that's the next chapter. Um, so Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, I've heard it pronounced both ways, was a German philosopher. Um, does anybody know anything about these characters, by the way? I, I, I'm always wondering how much information I should share. Uh, Nietzsche spent the last 11 years of his life uh, in a mental institution. Well, they called him a you know, asylums at the time. But then there's all kinds of speculation of why this happened. Um, there is not really a rumor, a uh, persistent argument that he had tertiary syphilis, which will basically eat your brain away. Um, I think there's some evidence for that. Others that he had brain cancer, um, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, his, it's it's, it's kind of sad, uh, but like I say, he was a, a misotheist. Uh, if, if he didn't know, I think he really did at least hate the Christian conception of God, and he despised Christianity, uh, even though he too was uh, the family of nominal Lutherans, I believe. So he was an atheist, and his famous phrase, God is dead, and he used it deliberately meant not only that God does not exist, but the idea of God is, is now irrelevant, and deliberately so. The philosophers of the rationalist enlightenment, not there were Christians involved in the enlightenment, um, not the majority, but there were some. Uh, John Locke was one, for example, um, had declared that God was no longer relevant. Christianity was no longer relevant. Religion was passe, et cetera, et cetera. But Nietzsche argued, in effect, 
and this is in Truman's words, but he's correct. Enlightenment philosophers failed to draw the necessary conclusions from this notion. Uh, so he shared, Truman did, that parable of the madman, where the madman comes in the marketplace with the lantern, and he's looking for God. And of course, this is like almost like a prophetic enactment. And people were laughing at him because he's looking for God, you know, and they're all atheists. And he said, I see my, I've come too soon. You've not realized what great thing has happened and great as in stupendous and, and cataclysmic. Um, uh, God is dead and we've killed him, but you haven't realized the consequences of there no longer being a God because the... Not everybody in uh, Europe was an atheist, but let's just say Europe's been post-Christian for a lot longer than the United States. Um, and there was an urbane, somewhat sophisticated agnosticism and atheism, but people didn't realize, well, that means, among other things, that morality has absolutely no foundation whatsoever. You can't keep on acting like these values that you've been living by actually mean anything anymore. They do not because God is dead and we have killed him. Um, so he also said uh, this. Um, he despised religion. Um, he said morality is dead, but he also said this about truth. Uh, Truman doesn't share this, but I wanted to share it. Uh, so he says this, Nietzsche, this is Nietzsche, truth is a mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, anthropomorphisms, in short, a sum of human relations which were poetically and rhetorically heightened, transferred and adorned, and after long use seemed solid, canonical, and binding to a nation. Truths are illusions about which it has been forgotten that they are illusions. Now, has anybody heard of, uh, let's see, Michel Foucault was a French philosopher. He took this idea and ran with it and said all, all claims of truth and knowledge are actually attempts to assert power. They have actually nothing to do with whether something is really true or not. And he was Nietzschean through and through, as was uh, Jacques Derrida. Uh, both of them, uh, what, are, what came to be called uh, deconstruction. Still with me? <laughs> okay. So one of the necessary conclusions was that traditional morality, as well as truth, like I just pointed out, based on belief in God, was completely undermined. There is no moral stability to the universe. There is no moral structure to human nature. We are free from all such constraints. Now, that was kind of cheapened, uh, and stuck on a bumper sticker on, in the 60s, you know, do your own thing. That's actually very Nietzschean. Um, I also point out that, you know, have you ever heard anybody say, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger? Yeah, that was Nietzsche too, and it didn't work for him, and it doesn't work. You just say, no, that's not true. What doesn't kill you could leave you seriously injured, debilitated, you know, crushed and, and helpless. And it can. Anyway, he was a very interesting fellow. I call, I'm not the only one, uh, calls Nietzsche the last romantic. Uh, 
uh, he really is the outcome of where romanticist thinking uh, leads to. Uh, and this is because he didn't just believe in producing art and in the, the romanticists believe that art could, could teach us good morals as nature could teach us good morals. Nietzsche said, well, there are no morals. What you do is you create yourself. Um, this is called poesis, or self-making, as opposed to mimesis, which is uh, following a God-given pattern to understand who you are and become what you are supposed to be. Um, and we'll get more to that in just a second. Any questions so far? So for Nietzsche, uh, Christian morality was... I have a question. I do have a quick question. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, when he's talking about uh, when he's talking about there being no truth and truth is, is what you construct and so forth, is he thinking specifically in terms of moral truth, or is he opposed to like scientific empiricism as well? Is there any any concept of, of any um, absolutist thought? I'm not a Nietzsche philosopher, but he doesn't just um, he doesn't just restrict it to moral truth. What he says that what we call truth is really a power play. Um, you could say he was the first deconstructionist. How he actually felt about empiricism, I can't say. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure, in a sense, every postmodernist believe that if they hit themselves in the head with a rock, it's going to hurt, whether they believe it's true or not. Uh, you know, that it's a real rock. Um, so, and, and you know, when, when people say things like that, like, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth. I, always, I instructed my students, and actually I, I, had a, uh, I had a student say, some, some student said that in his philosophy class in college once. He went on and took a philosophy class in college. And I said, uh, I, what you need to ask them is, is that statement true? And then if they say whatever they say, and if they say yes, I said, absolutely true? I said, well, there's one thing you say is absolutely true. And actually, the professor of the philosophy class commended him for that. That's more in the line of moral relativism, the, eye that there's no, the idea that there's no such truth there's no truth that applies to everybody at all times and in all places. There's no objective or universal or absolute truth. That's kind of what he meant, not that there were no facts. So, best I can do on short notice, okay? <laughs> um, I've read Nietzsche. Um, I find him fascinating, but like I say, I'm no Nietzsche expert. He is one of my favorite atheists, though, because unlike modern... Uh, what do I call them, not just militant atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, 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 Daniel Denton, I think, or is it Daniel? Daniel Dennett. Um, they're they're kind of smarmy, and they, they believe they can have their truth and and morality and and eat it too, because that's pretty much what denying God does. So they do not understand again that to say that God does not exist and that anything having to do with God is utterly irrelevant utterly undermines what you think of yourself as a human being based on any authority yeah did you have a question or a comment yeah, uh, uh, yeah well, since you, you just brought that up it 
somewhere, I don't remember where I read it, but it was talking about the idea that these older atheists, Nietzsche and those guys, there was almost a lament in their conclusion, in the fact that they were saying, yeah, I don't believe in God. And whereas in these modern atheists, there, it's just like, no, nope, full steam ahead, no lament, no, no lament that there is no God and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I call it nihilism with a happy face. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's, they don't get it. Yeah. Um, Nietzsche got it. Um, another interesting atheist, although he was more positive about religion, was, was Albert Camus. So he believed in the face of an absurd universe. Okay, so I'm not sure what he thought of the book of Ecclesiastes, that we can, we can, we can assert our, our worth and self-meaning in the face of a universe that says nothing to us. Um, he said this in the myth of Sisyphus and other essays. Um, there's a T-shirt you can buy. We, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. Um, I'm digressing, but... Um, so Sisyphus was another one of those guys who... I forget what Sisyphus did to the gods, and they ticked him, he, you know, he ticked them off. And his punishment was to have to push a boulder up a hill all day and until the evening, and then in the evening it'd roll back down again and he'd have to push it all up again. And to Camus, that was where we find ourselves in a universe that is absurd and that somehow we can, we can gain happiness in a certain rebelling against our absurdity. Um, you almost admire him for trying, but you know, and he writes very well. Uh, if you've ever read The Plague or The Rebel, The Stranger, well, I've read them in English. Anyway, there are atheists who understand that uh, denying God or declaring that God is dead changes everything. Um, Modern atheists don't seem to get that. They, they want to argue that you can have morality without God. Anyway, uh, Christian morality was slave morality because it valued weakness over strength and was supposedly born of the resentment of weak, poor, sick slaves towards their masters. For master morality, in Nietzsche's thought original morality, what was morally good was to be strong, wealthy, and powerful, not necessarily cruel or evil or anything like that, but be able to actually take what you want um, and have those things that made for happiness. Uh, I don't know if Nietzsche ever used the term, but he also meant he, basically aristocratic or even heroic morality. He admired the Greeks and the question of honor. The Christian valorization, the declaring them to be value of such things as equality, uh, Nietzsche did not believe in the equality of man. It's painfully obvious to him that men and women are not equal. You know, we were different and some are better than others. Would this be a distinction between him and um, Karl Marx? 
Um, yeah, and again, we're like, I'm, I'm not an expert on Marxism either. Although I did buy the Communist Manifesto when I was uh, in prep school with you. Who invited you to teach this class? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was you. Um, I, I bought it when I was in prep school because I, I had some sympathy for radical. This was this was at this was at St. Andrews, by the way, um, um, an Episcopal boarding school. Um, I think Marx did believe in equality, uh, but uh, as in the uh, in Animal Farm, some were more equal than others. It just seems like his political philosophy would value, or at least be theoretically on the side of the weak to rise up and overthrow right. the strong, whereas. It seems like Nietzsche would say the strong are the strong because right. they deserve it. Um, that's correct. Um, again, Marx was one of the ones who didn't really completely deal with the upshot of atheism. First of all, <coughs> if God does not exist, uh, there, there can be no teleology in the universe. Now, teleology is the idea that things have an inherent nature and they, they move towards their purpose. So history is moving all by itself towards a goal. Even though there's no God, there is no providence. Um, I don't know who said it, but um, somebody said communism is the kingdom of God without God. It's the belief that the kingdom will come and it will come by human revolution, but these things are inevitable. They are simply going to happen in history because that's what history does. Now, does that contradict what Nietzsche thought? Well, yes, but they still share some of the same ideas. It'll also contradict what Charles Darwin said, even though Lenin was, was known for thinking that, that Darwinism, particularly social Darwinism, lent credence to his Marxism. Well, it doesn't because Darwin specifically came up with the idea of evolution to to deny any divine uh, exercise of purpose in history or that anything in history actually had teleological meaning or purpose. Things just happen. Um, I think it's Stephen Gould who's a well-known Marxist evolutionist. He was. He died. He was an interesting fellow, by the way. Who was um, he? Uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Gould. He's uh, a paleontologist at Harvard. Um, forgot my point. Um, oh, yeah. He believed uh, if, if you started evolution all over again and ran it, nothing would be the same because everything happens by happenstance and coincidence. Um, anyway, try and focus on the focus here. And the focus is, um, for Nietzsche, uh, even, he, he used the word morality as a convenience. But for him, master or aristocratic or heroic morality, that was what was actually good. Um, although, in a sense, it was beyond good and evil, which is the title of one of his books. 
So the Christian valorization, the declaring to have value of such things as equality, charity, and self-restraint just became ways for the weak to dominate the strong. Um, now, if you're thinking, well, these eyes, these ideas don't exactly match. No, no they don't. And well, I could drift off into a whole other thing here. It's, it's one of the phenomena when you look at the history of philosophy, particularly uh, a philosophy that denies God, that you end up with highly developed systems which seem, you know, on the surface to maybe have some plausibility. I mean, Marx wasn't wrong about everything about economics. Uh, Nietzsche was not wrong about the, you know, uh, the, the upper classes and the middle classes uh, and the fashionable atheists in Europe not dealing adequately with the fact that they denied God. But as a matter of fact, they, they, they clash in the sense that they really can't, that their intention and sometimes they're contradictory, like, uh, not to start a political argument, but one of, one of the catchphrases uh, during the whole pandemic was follow the science. We'll follow the science to what? To, and, and hire a, a man who thinks he's a woman to be, what, the assistant surgeon general who was a health officer in Pennsylvania, um, or have a federal government that now believes in gender affirmation as care for gender dysphoria. Gender affirmation is basically take doing medical procedures and using strong drugs on even on minors uh, to to affirm that the gender they feel inside is is the gender that they are. Well that's not science. Um, so there you're gonna see a lot of contradictions when we go through these, but as a matter of fact you can trace, he is correct, Truman is correct, that you can trace certain ideas through them all, and one of those is expressive individualism. And another one, I think, is misotheism, which he doesn't trace, but I, we may later. Uh, it's just the outworking of the rebellion against God. So Nietzsche holds that in the absence of God, a divinely sanctioned morality and any moral nature to human beings... Um, Oops. No, that's correct. That in the absence of God, that should that should be a uh, another M dash. Um, we are tasked in the absence of any morality. We are tasked with the art of self creation. We have no God given nature. We are not created in the image of God. Uh, or purpose which which we must seek to follow our lives that is pattern our lives on that's mimesis um, it's where we get the word imitation from but it means more than that it's the seeking you know well Paul said imitate me and so far as I imitate Christ um, the Greek term meant a bit more than just you know faking it um, we must make who we are in whatever way we choose, poesis. So in this sense, uh, Nietzsche is, and claims so, by the atheist existentialists as kind of their godfather. Um, 
uh, Camus, uh, Nietzsche was a, a hero to Camus, and Jean-Paul Sartre, because they believe that uh, humans exist, but they have no nature. You create what you are. And you can see how this idea can eventuate in somebody thinking, well, you know, I'm, uh, my gender was assigned male at birth, assigned male at birth. Doesn't this mean that gender reveal parties are now, like, politically incorrect? Um, but, you know, I'm going to make myself into a woman. Uh, we are just so much plastic material. Anyway, let's... Almost done. Oscar Wilde, a fascinating fellow. Again, multi-talented. Um, Nietzsche was an interesting writer. Um, he could be bombastic, um, but he could also be witty and he could be self-deprecating in a sense. Uh, Oscar Wilde was an Irish writer, poet, and playwright. His most famous book was uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which I haven't read the whole book, but I haven't seen the whole movie either, but I've seen most of it. Fascinating story, actually, uh, about a man who devoutly wants uh, the, the degradations and the damage of his immorality to actually show up on the portrait and not on him. So he engages in all kinds of debauchery and licentiousness, and, and he always just looks like this fine, young, upstanding, you know, middle-aged bon vivant, but then at the end you get this reveal of the portrait, and the portrait is just this horrible, diseased, Individual. It didn't start out that way. It started looking like him. Does everybody know the story of the picture of Dorian Gray? So Truman argues that Oscar Wilde is a good example of Nietzsche's concept of the Superman, that is the Ubermensch, which in Nietzsche's idea was not a Nazi stormtrooper. Oh, he would have despised Hitler if he'd, if he'd lived to see it. Um, but that doesn't mean his idea... You know, this is part of the law of unintended consequences. Nietzsche did not intend for his ideas to be taken the way the Nazis took them. But nevertheless, it's, you know, you might not intend for your child to kill themselves, but if you leave a loaded gun with no safety on it out and your three-year-old child gets a hold of it, they might kill themselves. So... Um, for Nietzsche, the idea of a Superman, and, and Truman is right about this too. Uh, although there are, some, there are some Nietzsche apologists who say, you know, that you're taking, just taking Nietzsche completely out of context when you talk about Nietzsche and the Nazis. Well, in some sense you are, but as a matter of fact, Nietzsche's ideas could be taken that way. You know, when you talk about will to power is the essence of life and you talk about master morality and true happiness is being able to take what you want and that there are strong and there are weak, well, you know, don't be surprised if some people take you seriously in a way that you thought. I mean, who is Nietzsche to tell you that the Nazis were wrong? Uh, he, he can't do that. Although he, he did not like nationalism or anti-Semitism. Nietzsche did not. So uh, Truman is right that Oscar Wilde would have been more of an example for Nietzsche of the Superman. Um, one who engages in dramatic, transgressive self-creation. For Wilde, as for Nietzsche, what is aesthetically pleasing has supplanted the notion of moral correctness. And I think 
you can read in that statement a description of a lot of what goes on, not just in art, but in cultural life of all kinds. Um, Wilde lived out Nietzsche's thought that in Truman's words, you could be whoever or whatever works for you. You should feel no obligation to conform to the standards or criteria of anybody else. Now, I'm going to add one thing to the chapter because Truman actually discusses this in relation to these ideas in his larger book, uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He doesn't mention it here, though the idea is there. And this is the idea of emotivism. Emotivism, and this is, um, he discusses Alasdair McIntyre, but this is how Alasdair McIntyre describes emotivism. Emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments and more sp- value judgments judgments of right and wrong, and more specifically, all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference and expressions of attitude or feeling. You are just expressing your emotions when you say murder is wrong, or rape is wrong, or a man wanting to change himself into a woman is wrong, or homosexual activity is wrong. You are just expressing negative emotions about that. That's all morality is, according to emotivism. Alistair McIntyre decried this idea. He he wasn't supporting it. He believed in virtue uh, ethics. Um, uh, A.J. Eyre, who was a logical positivist, I'll let Michael explain that later, Logical positivism basically says nothing but either scientific statements or analytic statements are factual. So A equals A. That's perforce true. Because, or if you said, you know, A times B equals B times A, you can actually just analyze the statement and it's true. Or statements of empirical fact. These are actually the only things that are stating truths or facts. So Ayer said in saying that a certain, now he supported this idea, A.J. Ayer did, in saying that a certain type of action is right or wrong, I am not making any factual statement, I am merely expressing certain moral sentiments. And again, this is uh, part of the view of uh, someone like an Oscar Wilde. Oh, okay. (laughs) Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity to learn and discuss these things. Uh, I I pray your spirit will guide our discussion and um, help us understand that in all our perplexity and our concern and even our alienation that that you have given us your spirit as a down payment of the fullness of the kingdom of God and the presence of Christ. So the Spirit is with us now, and we pray that uh, he will guide us, that we will be open to his influence um, in everything, but particularly in understanding this phenomenon in our culture. And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.